Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez. And I want to thank you for joining us. We are now um, on episode 52, and we are in 2019. Happy New Year to everyone. Who knows, it might be 2022 by the time someone gets around to listening to this episode. But you should know, it was the first episode in 2019. So uh, thank you for listening. We are on a roll. We have a, a great guest today, Josh Simmons. Josh hails from Northern Virginia, right in the D.C. area. He left a really excellent boutique law firm to go be a fiction writer, and he has uh, published numerous books, and we're going to hear more from him soon. Also, at the end of this episode, we're going to hear from another one of the songs from Melodyne. You heard Melodyne way, way back on a very early episode of the Agents of Innovation podcast. You've also heard us play many of their songs uh, as different episode endings. So we're going to close this episode like we always do with a song, and this one will be a new song by Melodyne called Tunnels. Uh, I think it's fitting as well uh, for our guest today, uh, who also, Melodyne also hails from Northern Virginia, like our guest. And um, anyway, hopefully Josh Simmons can see the lights coming through the tunnel um, of his, well, let's not call it a tunnel of his career. He had a heck of a career as a lawyer. But now he's embarking on a new journey as a fiction writer. And so we are going to hear from Josh. Um, Before we get to the interview, I want to just remind you, all of the interviews um, can be found uh, through, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Also, we have a great website, agentsofinnovation.org. On that website, you can find links to all the blog posts. We do a unique blog post about every episode. We also have social media accounts on Facebook. Twitter, and Instagram. Please find Agents of Innovation podcast on all of those platforms. Like us, share us, tell your friends about us. This is how we grow. In the first uh, 51 episodes, we've had about 7,000 different plays of our episodes. And we're now um, worldwide, multiple countries. I think six, seven, eight countries I last counted where people are listening to the Agents of Innovation podcast Blows my mind because I do this from Orlando, Florida. Of course, we interview guests all over the place. Uh, Interview uh, with Josh here. Um, He hails from Northern Virginia, as I said. But we've been in many states. And uh, California, Texas, Florida, D.C., Virginia, New York. Many places in between uh, getting these great guests, great entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Number one thing you can do, though, after you listen to this episode is, if you're especially if you're listening to this episode on iTunes, make sure you're subscribed. Subscribe a friend, maybe, uh, as you're sharing the episode. But if you haven't yet written a review, please go in and write a, a review. We have, uh, last check, over 20 reviews, but some podcasts have thousands of reviews. And so we would love to get into those numbers one day. But hey, if I could hit 100 reviews by the end of 2019... That'd be a great resolution. So uh, please review. Uh, if you've already done so, maybe get a friend to review um, because it really helps, especially when you rate us five stars. 
um, and maybe write a little comment about something you liked about one of the episodes or, or whatever. So anyway, thank you so much for listening to the Agents of Innovation podcast. And now we're going to get to episode 52 featuring Josh Simmons. I would like to welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast my friend Josh Simmons, or as he goes by now, J.B. Simmons, because he's a big author. Uh, Josh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Francisco. It's great to be here. Well, I kidded you a little bit yesterday. Uh, I'd send you a text because I, I found your website, jbsimmons.com. And I, I said, oh, I see. It's JB now, like C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, J.K. Rowling. I get what you're doing here, Josh. Following in the footsteps of legends. If it's, uh, if it's worked for them, why not for me? Right, right. So, uh, Josh, uh, to introduce you to the audience, uh, he's the author of now seven books and uh, thanks to his work in the legal field, countless legal briefs. Uh, his newest release um, is The Blue Tower. Uh, and he, Josh, these are all fictional works, right? They are, yes. I've done one nonfiction, but the rest are all fiction and mostly in a young adult. Which is the nonfiction? It's called The Awakening of Washington's Church. Oh, interesting. We're going to have to get into this. Well, uh, I see that uh, touted on your website, you say that the common thread is that the books tackle hard questions and turn them into page turners, smart stories, epic ideas. You've got a lot of uh, great commentary and critical reviews of this. Now, Josh, I know you live just outside Washington with your wife, Lindsay, and three kids. Um, You're a graduate of the University of North Carolina and the law school at the University of Virginia, uh, and then you spent about a decade uh, with a law firm. Um, <clears throat> I noticed you, you mentioned traveling the world and suing foreign governments at your boutique law firm. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the early part of your career, and then we'd love to hear the journey of how you transitioned away from law to writing fiction. Absolutely. Well, it's it's always been a desire of mine to write. And I actually had a professor in college who I admired and trusted and I, he knew my interest in writing. And I asked him if I want to be a better writer, what should I do? Should I go get a PhD in English or some other field? He said, you should go to law school, which I thought was interesting advice, but I took that advice and then, uh, enjoyed law school a lot. As you said, practice for 10 years, I've always had an interest in international issues and so found myself doing international legal work, which had me traveling a lot around the world, And um, but all the time practicing writing. And I think that's one of the benefits of law. You can see it in a, the other big names in the field, John Grisham, David Baldacci. There's something about story, storytelling and writing that is so critical in the legal field that plays pretty nicely when you start trying to write novels. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, I w- you know, it's funny, when you mentioned that, John Grisham comes to mind. Um, and I know most of his work is focused on uh, sort of legal stories. Uh, you know, we think of The Firm, The Classic, The Pelican Brief, uh, many others. Uh, so, but yours are in a completely different genre. They are, yes. Yeah. So he, he basically invented the field of the legal thriller and has become a, a, a household name in America. But I was 
caught up in the wave of interest in young adult fiction, you know, within the past 10 or 15 years. Obviously, there are big successes like Harry Potter that everyone has read, but also books like Hunger Games. These are really culture-defining books, and it was incredibly insightful to me that books targeted to young adults would go on to be read by people of all ages. And I thought, there's something to these kinds of books in this genre. And I think part of what's compelling about those books is that they really capture your attention. And I think it's hard today maybe for for people to carve out the time to read. And so you really have to catch people's attention with a story and hold them. So this is why I mentioned the page-turning books. And Young Adult does that really well. So that's something I wanted to try. Well, that's great. Um, So tell me a little bit. You were working at your firm, um, and it sounds like uh, from what I know about you, you're you're a hard worker, and you were probably working – quite the number of lawyer hours, as they say, um, and, you know, long weeks, and I know you're raising a family. Um, so tell me, what was it, uh, at what point, you know, you started, did you start writing uh, before you left your legal field, or um, how did that work? I did, yes. I was doing the two in tandem for some time, and it was difficult, as you can imagine, finding the time to write in a way, it was a testing ground to see, do I really want to do this? Am I really committed to writing? And a great way to test that is, would I find time in my schedule? Would I prioritize it? And what became very interesting was that, first, the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it and wanted to do it. So much so that even as, up to that point, a lifelong night owl who preferred to stay up late and and sleep in. I started waking up early in the mornings before doing my legal work to write. And for people who know me, like my wife, she saw that as, wow, he really is committed to this because otherwise there's no way he would be waking up at 5 a.m. to try to write before dawn. So you'd wake up at five. How long do you, uh, would you tend to write for? Until the kids wake up or or the legal demands set in. So it, it sort of depends on the day. But one of the things I really liked about those early morning hours is that it's a time when you can focus without interruption and do the work that's important to you before the distractions and the hustle and bustle of the day starts. Yeah, you know, we've had some other entrepreneurs on. I can think of, um, of Dan Lesniak, who's actually uh, right there in uh, Arlington, Virginia, uh, real estate guy, and um, you know he has his workout routine. He also does some reading. Uh, sometimes he does some uh, meditation. Uh, says he does it all before about six a.m., maybe seven at the latest. Uh, and I, anyway, we've heard this from a lot of entrepreneurs that getting things done sort of before everyone else turns the lights on and <laughs> gets their emails going and everything and all the demands of the workday. Uh, so it seems like that was something for you early morning. Um, that you can kind of get things done before your kids are waking up, before the, uh, like you said, the, the demands of your legal uh, career uh, are hitting you. Uh, and you, would you do this um, most, like weekday mornings, weekends? What? Uh, tell me how that worked on a weekly basis. Almost every day, whenever I could. I mean, I, I would make exceptions. Sleep is important, so I would try to sleep. But 
if there was something that kept me up late. But for the most part, I did try to get up early every morning. And it was not easy, I would say. I had elaborate systems to compel myself to get out of bed, such as alarm clocks far away from me that might wake up the kids if I don't get there in time, the coffee pre-made, everything I could do to make it easier to get started that early. And you know, the first 10 minutes are not particularly pleasant as you're waking up and it's still dark outside, but it is such precious time because your mind is clear. Your focus can really hone in on the project that you're doing. And then when you finish, say 6.30 or 7 o'clock, you feel like you've already established your place for the day. You, you've done important work already. And anything done after that is just bonus. Yeah. Um, and, and let me ask you too, like when, when you're writing, uh, I mean, it seems like you're, you've definitely by waking up at five and having other things to do probably by seven or something, uh, what, uh, like, how do you turn that off? Because I know sometimes writers, right, you get into a mode and you might just, you might just be really clicking one day and want to continue writing that story. Uh, is, was that difficult to kind of turn off? Two thoughts. First, yes, it was very difficult. I think it's hard to unplug when you're in flow and you're doing great work and then something comes in and you just have to stop. So it was a challenge, but there's a great quote by Ernest Hemingway about his approach to writing. And he said, every day I try to quit while I'm going good. And I think what he means by that is you don't have to completely exhaust your creative supply and your output of words every single day. And in fact, it can be helpful some days to finish in the middle. When you know what's coming next, you have it already in your mind. And so when you come and you sit down the next day, you know where to start, you know where you're going. And that way you're never sort of running out or burning out your fuel and then having to start from scratch because you're kind of sitting back down into the middle of where you were the day before. Well, that's, yeah, that's good advice. Uh, well, so you, how, um, when did you officially put down the, uh, the legal career? It was this spring. So it's been, um, about six months now. Okay. So most of your books, uh, what would you say you put five or six books out at least? Before yes. All, all, all but one of them. Okay. And, uh, so you were doing that. That's that's quite the schedule then you were keeping. And I imagine what was what was then the process? Let's talk about the first book. Um, which book was that? It's called Light in the Gloaming. Okay. And what when you were when you put that one out, what was your process in terms of getting it published? What you know, I mean, this is probably I know you've you've written a lot of other things, uh, you know, legal briefs and everything, but but actually going through uh the grinder of getting it published, uh, you know, how did that work and, and how did you get the, the book out there? The first thing about that book was that people look and they say, oh, you've written all these books while practicing law. How, how do you do it so fast? And it was not fast. I think that book took six years to write. So, it, you know, I'd put it down and pick it up and it was a long process. Um, but when I finished it, it was right around the time that, um, and this is sort of going straight to the Part of what this podcast is about. I was seeing, you know, something really innovative in the market, in the book market, in the sense that people were starting to buy books in only one place, and that place was Amazon. And there were some influential thinkers. Uh, one in particular was 
Guy Kawasaki, who was one of the early uh, early pioneers at Apple, became a very successful entrepreneur. And he wrote a book called Author, Publisher, Entrepreneur, in which he, this you know sort of legend of Silicon Valley in the tech world, published his own book. And he he said, "Here's how you do it. Um, this is the process." And so I was really intrigued by that. And because I was sort of busy with other things in my life, practicing law, starting a family, I thought, well, maybe I'll just put it out there and, and see what happens, um, sort of the, the path of, of least resistance and let, let people weigh in on what they think about the book before I consider you know, how I want to publish it or go about it. So I did that put it up on Amazon and was overwhelmed by people finding this book from all over the world, really enjoying the story, writing personal notes to me about how it impacted their lives. And I thought, wow, you know, the the gatekeeper is gone here. And so that book I just made available on Amazon and, uh, it was, you know, people were starting to get more and more books on Kindle and eBooks were taking off. And, that sort of started my my journey on independent publishing. Well, great. So have all of your books then been published that way? Yes, there's been some variation. Um, and and there's, a, there's a lot of breakdown in the market in terms of how books are published and labeled. So I've, I've worked some through an independent publisher, but uh, none of my books have been with sort of the New York big five publishers. And and I haven't pursued that uh, because it just hasn't hasn't been my focus. Well, um, I also noticed your books have incredible artwork on the covers. Uh, so, how did you go about finding? Um, you know, uh, did you find in some artists that were able to to do that for you? I found uh, through the suggestions of some friends, also entrepreneurs, discovered this amazing website called Ninety Nine Designs, through which with you know, a relatively small amount of money, you could have a contest that would bring together designers from all around the world, some of them very, very talented, some not so much, but they would all submit their, you you would describe the kind of cover you have in mind, and then the designers would submit their ideas. And what's fun about that is that I would receive, I don't know, 100, 200 different possible book covers, and then I would send it to uh, readers and fans who had started following my work and say, Hey, what do you like about these? Which one's your favorite? And then they could vote. And so while I might have my preference, it was incredibly valuable to have this objective crowdsourcing information on what kind of cover art is appealing. Cause it is so important. And that's another way in which, you know, I think for a long time in the publishing world, the, the big publishing houses had a, a monopoly on some of this talent, and it was difficult to access quality design without going through those publishing houses. And that that's gone, and now you can find really quality design without breaking the bank. So I use 99designs. Uh, I've, I've found some designers through 99designs that I've then continued to work with on a one-on-one basis, but... Um, crowdsourcing was the secret to those covers, really. Well, that's great. Well, and it seems like um, you've been successful enough to where you were able to put down that um, legal career full time and focus on the books, focus on the writing. 
Um, tell me, what was the process like? I know you detail this a little bit uh, in some of your in some of your blogs and everything that you've written about this. But tell me a little bit about what was the decision point for you on on the fact that you wanted to go ahead and focus on this one hundred percent. Uh, not do the uh, necessarily cramming it in at five to seven in the morning um, and just and just take it on full time. It was not an easy decision, and it was certainly a long journey and process to reach that point. I mentioned before that I was finding that the more I wrote, the more I wanted to write. And readers were writing to me, and they were interested in when's the next book coming out, and. I thought, well, it's it's going to be a, a long time because I'm practicing law full time. I'm spending a lot of time on the road, traveling around the world, doing this work. But I I started to really feel the desire to pursue the writing, to give it a shot. There was a quote by Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Sort of, he was reflecting on his time before he started that company, and he was in you know successful sort of professional career beforehand. And he thought, you know, if I look back sixty years from now. Will I be glad that I took this chance to try to start this company or will I, will I regret not having tried that? And it was when I went through that same thought exercise, it was pretty easy to see I, this is a window of time when I can pursue this, this dream and this passion of writing full time and I'm not going to regret trying you know, the legal world is still there. It continues to, the world continues to spin and, and perhaps I could rejoin it someday in some capacity, but this is this is an opportune moment to to pursue writing, and part of that too was was family considerations. Um, you know, obviously trying to do both practicing law, which I enjoyed, and writing took a lot of time, and it took me uh, away from from my kids, and I wanted to see them more. I wanted to have a little less travel, and so right time for the family, right time with writing. Um, in terms of the kinds of projects I was pursuing and the time that I wanted to commit to that. So, er, and I reached a point, and also uh, in law, you come to a point where you really need to decide, are you going to invest more and more in this? Uh, People say it's like a pie-eating contest where the winner gets more pie. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to get more pie, and I wasn't sure I wanted it. And so I thought, if, if there's a time when I could take this risky adventure it's now. And so I, I, I decided to leave. Well, good. So, um, so how did your, uh, how did your firm take that decision? <laughs> they took it really well. It was surprising. I was, uh, I mean, I, I was, I'd worked closely with these folks for a while and, and obviously respected them. We, we enjoyed working with, with each other, but I thought they're going to think I'm crazy. I, I'm going to tell them I'm leaving to write a novel and the, and, and they're going to laugh. But actually, they were all incredibly encouraging. And I think that's something that other people should take heart uh, from hearing because people love to see others pursuing their dreams. I think it emboldens them about their own lives and the kind of dreams they're pursuing. It's, um, and everybody has a passion. Everybody has some sort of creative pursuit that they would love to, to put more effort into. And I think particularly in law, that is it is often writing. And so it's not particularly surprising that a lawyer would want to write a book. Maybe most of them do in, in some distant part of themselves. So people were really encouraging. They said, good luck. We, we look forward to, to hosting a book signing for you someday. And um, so they bashed the champagne bottle as I, as I started the voyage. 
<laughs> what was the um, yeah? What was the transition like? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I imagine you worked a lot of um, heavy hours uh, with the law firm, and then and then now all of a sudden, um, the time has sort of freed up for you in a sense. Um, and 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 what has that been like now over the last six months? It's been it's been really good, but it has not been as 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 obviously easy as I maybe thought it was. I think time has a has a capacity to fill up no matter what you're doing. So it's it's um, what I've found is that it, it takes even more focus and daily emphasis on routine and habits to make sure I'm getting that I'm using this newfound time to write as much as I can because. There's so many other things, even as a writer, that that I can do in terms of you know, emailing with fans, marketing, PR, uh, reading, reading sort of about the industry, and, and so it's not it's not hard for that time to fill up. And I think it means before when I was when I was at the law firm, it was very obvious I had this tiny, consistent set of time when I could write early in the morning and. You know, I still have that, but I also have a little more freedom. So it might be easier to think, oh, I'll just relax and, you know, let the muse come. But I think that that's the danger. And I've, I have to be a little more on guard than I used to be about not letting that kind of thinking creep in. Because I think it really is, it's a vocation. You've got to sit down and do the work. One of uh, the most influential books for me by an author I really love named Stephen Pressfield is called The War of Art. And he he characterizes the enemy of creative pursuits as resistance. And it's this force that will come at you every day in every kind of way to try to stop you from doing your creative work. And so every day is a battle against resistance to carve out the time, really protect it when you're going to sit down with absolutely no distractions, no internet, no social media and do your work. And so I've had to be a little more um, deliberate about that and, and, not get too fanciful about living the dream life as an author. Yeah. Well, you've put together um, a great website at jbsimmons.com. And um, I know all of your work is there, um, a little bit about yourself, of course. And you've got a, a blog that you, you seem to keep up pretty regularly. And I see some of your social media links as well um, with, the, with the sort of uh, – new focus now away from, from the law career. Um, do you find, uh, being able to interact a lot more online with people as well, in addition to, you know, writing that, that next book? I am doing more of it, uh, but sort of consistent with the point I said before it, again, that's an area where I could sink hours every day into Facebook and Twitter and, and everything else. So I really try still to, to be disciplined about that time and to not do too much because ultimately it's, it's the books that I'm writing. That's why I've, I've taken this path. And so I, I continue to try to focus on that rather than, you know, I don't blog as much as, as other authors might. I don't post as much on social media. And, uh, and that's largely because of just trying to focus on the writing. Well, you know, sometimes I think, um, if you, post too much or let's, maybe let's flip that around um the the less you post the more the more uh quality you know it it, it is and, and a little more you know it's a little um well somebody hasn't heard from you as much and when they do it's they're, they're really grasping onto it so sometimes there's that uh 
that little bit of, hey, you know, being being out there enough to continue being relevant and not being forgotten in a sense, but but not being out there too much because then people kind of get tired of you. <laughs> I think that's a good point. It, there are many writers who have done well at cultivating their mystique by being difficult to find and to, to talk to. So um, there's there's something admirable about that path. And I think particularly today because it is countercultural to not be out there as much. Yeah, so um, – so you're doing you're doing all of that, and uh, we had a we had a guest on uh, this podcast just a few episodes ago, episode forty nine, who uh, Nathan Edmondson. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to meet Nathan at all. Um, I know we share some mutual friends, but the uh, but Nathan is actually a comic book writer, and he has actually had a few of his uh, stories now um, be produced into Hollywood films. They're in production now. Um, some A-list actors and everything. So he's doing great. Do you uh, foresee the possibility of some of your stories getting picked up and made into movies? Well, one of mine uh, has, it has been optioned. So I, um, there, there's a small production company out in Hollywood that is pursuing early conversations. So certainly not in production. And I don't, I'm no expert in the way in which um, a book goes to screenplay, goes to movie, but um, it it is it is under work, and that is incredibly exciting. I think there's something about books, and and my books in particular, readers have often written and said, "Wow, this should be a movie," and I respond, "I agree," because <laughs> um, I mean. More people watch movies, um, and but but the heart of the story, and I think that's why books are great at ex- like exploring the story, establishing these characters, and creating this world that could be a compelling movie. And so, you know, my Unbound trilogy, I think, uh, if it were to hit the silver screen someday, and and it's in you know early early phases of of that possibility, that would be incredible. And same for the newest book, The Blue Tower. I think uh, I was having a conversation with a young student the other day who had just finished the book and just came out a week or so ago. And I said, Oh, that's great. Would you, how'd you like it? He said, I oh, really, really liked it. And we talked a little more about the kinds of books he likes. He's read sort of Harry Potter. And I said, well, how did it compare to Harry Potter? He said, I liked yours more. And then I, I just crumpled onto the floor in, in bliss because, um, you know, Harry Potter, I think is, is a quintessential example. Most people have read the books, but pretty much all kids have seen the movies because, they're really powerful. It's a compelling story, great characters. And so if, if the Blue Tower were to reach that level of cultural influence someday, that would be a dream come true. Well, it certainly would. Well, and then, you know, you get, you know, like you said, I mean, people, uh, more people watch movies and then once something's on the big screen, and then they, a lot of times those people, uh, many of them will return and read the book if they hadn't before, which then, you know, uh, gives them sort of the fuller story and and everything, so that that would be that'd be really fantastic, and uh, we'll definitely post some updates if uh, if that does happen to inform listeners of this podcast uh, what's going on with you, and of course they can continue to find your work at all of your social media and on your website at jbsimmons.com. Now, Josh, before we uh, wrap this up, one of the things I've been doing on maybe the last eight or 10 episodes of this podcast is asking a question that I actually got from uh, U.S. Senator Ben Sass. I was reading his book earlier this year called The Vanishing American Adult. And, you know, even though he's a 
politician. Uh, he was actually a history uh, professor first, and he, um, you know, is a, this book is more about the culture. And one of the things he says he likes to ask people uh, to learn a little bit more about them is what was your first job? And so if you could recount what your first job was, uh, and then if there's anything maybe you learned from it, anything maybe you still carry with you today, feel free to share that as well. Great question. Great book. And if anyone has not read that book, I have. It's it's fantastic, especially for, for people who have kids. I really like Vanishing American Adult. Um, my first job, sort of a consistent paid job, was working in a restaurant. It was a steakhouse in uh, my hometown in North Carolina. And the, a friend of mine's dad owned this steakhouse. It was a locally owned place, but sort of a, a culture, you know, a community center. Lots of people would come and had a lively bar and, and lots of things. And I worked in the kitchen in like, uh, as one of the line chef is a little too glamorous. I was not really cooking anything, but someone would cook the, cook the steak and put it on the plate. And then you need to sort of put the accoutrements on the plate. And so I would do that. Um, what did I learn from that? I learned a ton. First it was, it was odd hours to work because you'd show up for work at, you know, 5 PM and then work until midnight or so. And it made me realize, wow, people work kind of all when and where you work really shapes your reality because it would just define people's entire uh, lifestyle that they would work that late at night. I learned about restaurants and uh, you know what to look for in a good restaurant and what to, what you might want to avoid. Um, but I think most of all is is work ethic. This was the summer before college when I had that job and. Um, it was not, you know, as someone going off to a nice liberal arts school, University of North Carolina, it was not a particularly glamorous thing to do. But I showed up day after day and 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 did the work, got paid for it, and uh, went on to have other not as glamorous jobs, sort of doing similar work in college, and um, got a lot from that. So line chef in a steakhouse that oh, was the good. first job That's, uh, yeah, we've heard that one before we've had a few people i think that have worked uh uh certainly in restaurants or around food uh but uh but that's good um but i think you're right i mean uh there are a lot of different uh, jobs, many service jobs. I mean, I live in Florida. We, Orlando especially, uh, service job capital probably. And, uh, you know, people work, uh, you know, their lives revolve around around that work at all hours of the day. You know, people want to go to Disney World early in the morning and stay late at night and at all the restaurants and all the entertainment that, that surrounds all of that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so and then and then as you mentioned, um you know, sometimes these jobs aren't glamorous, but they're they're stepping stones or teaching work ethic. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's great. Well, Josh, um, are you? What are you working on right now? I'm working on the sequel to the Blue Tower. So I, uh, many the the readers who have finished the Blue Tower say, when's the next one coming? Well, uh, it's it's going to come out next year. So I'm working on that. I'm also working on a different kind of book, uh, perhaps to appear under a different pen name, because uh, I've been working on something more in the mold of a, a thriller, international politics, espionage, and intrigue. So it's, uh, it's called The Treaty Room, and um, news to come about when and where that will appear. 
So um, you mentioned the Blue Tower, and previously you had the, the Babel Tower, and this is going to be part of uh, uh, this is a, a five-tower series? Exactly, yes. Okay, and then this, uh, this, this, this new one you have, I'm sorry, what was the title of it again? The Treaty Room. The Treaty is, Room. Is the uh, thriller, yes. Is, so, I, you know, going back to your, uh, your decade traveling the world and suing foreign governments as a lawyer, uh, do you, uh, did you get some stories that um, maybe encapsulated your imagination for this book? Lots of stories. Some of, some of, some of them I, I can share and some of them I can't. Names will be changed um, and, and um, confidences will not be betrayed. But there's, it's a rich world out there. And I think, you know, I still have an interest in international affairs and foreign policy, and, but also in writing. And I think this book is a way to, to bring those two together in hopefully an incredibly gripping story that will uh, bring, bring it to life. Well, um, we're, again, I, I, you keep uh, making me think about some things because I keep wanting to wrap up this uh, podcast. But, uh, you know, I, tra- I like to travel a lot and I, I like to blog a lot when I travel, especially just sharing experiences. You know, uh, I think I sent you some of my, uh, my blogs uh, when I went to Israel this year. But the, uh, uh, what is it about for you? Have you seen about like travel? And I know, you know, a lot of it you did for business as well. Um, does, uh, do you see travel opening up the mind or, or making you, uh, kind of find stories in, in different ways, um, than say sitting at home on the couch or doing, you know, just, you know, just being local. Absolutely. I studied abroad twice in college. Um, and so I just traveled all over, traveled for work. And I think it's incredibly helpful to see different perspectives and to realize that the, the world is not the only the cocoon that you live in it's helpful both to appreciate, um, that. I mean, every time I travel around, I come back to the United States and love our country more, but I also appreciate the differences with other countries a little better too. Um, and in fact, even though the blue tower is more of a, uh, young adult, uh, dystopian kind of story, one of the, without giving too much of a spoiler, one of the features of that book and something I was I cared a lot about and had a lot of interest in was what if we people want to talk about um, you know cultural differences and how do we reconcile these and I wanted to push that to an extreme you know what if all cultures all times had to relate in some way on an equal playing field so I'm always fascinated by that interplay uh, and going down to just basic human dynamics and how we have so much in common and sometimes we lose sight of that because of cultural differences. Well, great. Well, um, I think you're right. And uh, I, I, I get some of the same uh, experiences when I'm abroad. I'm, I'm interested to see how you're going to, uh, you know, a lot of times I will write just simply um, based on observation, you know, um, actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, creating fiction out of, out of any, any new, new fictional writing out of any experiences necessarily. But, uh, um, but I do see, you know, how, um, some great experiences and adventures can be turned into some really good writing. Um, you know, even if it's nonfiction writing, uh, but I so I'm really excited to see how you turn that, um, into some fictional stories based on maybe some realities that you've seen. And, um, and then, you know, we'll be excited to see when the, the, the treaty room comes out. Thank you. All right, Joshua, I want to thank you so much for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Of course, uh, people uh, 
can see the writings by J.B. Simmons, uh, and of everything is at jbsimmons.com. And uh, Josh, just want to thank you again for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. It has been my pleasure. Keep up the good work with this show, and uh, thanks so much for all that you're doing. All right, thank you. Got my knees on the floor, fingers intertwined. Praying, dear Lord, what you got in mind. Oh, I ain't looking for a place to hide. Just the will to save this heart of mine. I was raised on the words that the preacher spoke I was spoon-fed all my do's and don'ts But boys turn to men when the world says so And holding on gets tough when the big winds blow I've been singing to the tune of a worn-down symphony I need a Funny, I need a holiday.